if you would, please open your Bibles to, I'll do uh, like Steve Lawson or R.C. Sproul, one of those two did, uh, to me this week. Open your Bibles to page one. <laughs> Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you again for this night. Father, we thank you again uh, that we can come together as your people to worship. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to confess our sins. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, grant us repentance as we move forward. Uh, Lord, I pray tonight that you would help me, Father, to deliver your word to your people. Lord, I pray, as inadequate as I am, as a messenger, Father, I pray that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit, because your Holy Spirit is not inadequate in any way to communicate your truth to your people, so that our hearts are changed, so that we are more obedient to your words, so that we are more faithful to your commands. God, and above all that, that we know you. But we know that your word says that to know you is to have life. And Father, we seek abundant life in knowing you. So God, help us and help me. Amen. <clears throat> so we've now... Uh, completed our study of the first chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Yay! Uh, as intensive as some of those concepts were, we now must move into what many theologians agree is the most important subject that we could study as Christians. The second chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith is on God and the Holy Trinity. And I think we can agree that without understanding who God is, our faith would be meaningless. And I'll touch on that just a bit at the end. Uh, on the way here tonight, we were listening to K-Love, and I really don't like that radio station. Uh, but they were talking about this one particular artist and this song that I guess is a really popular song right now. And I don't even know, I can't remember what the artist's name is. I, I think he's put out some stuff because his voice sounded familiar that, I, that I've liked before. Uh, but they were talking about this one song and, and the, the chorus to this song has a line in it, some, something along the lines of there's only love in the heart of God. And it it's disappointing that that's a popular song. And here's why. God is more than love. And within the heart of God is a plethora of different things and attributes, right? I mean, Jeremy read tonight, Psalm 5. Uh, there's a verse there in verse 5 in Psalm 5 that says, God hates those who do iniquity, and so that, there, so that there's hatred against sin in the heart of God, right? Uh, tonight, what I want to do in order to look at the doctrine of God uh, is to begin to study numerous passages and verses that lay out the attributes that are given in the confession. And so first we're going to have to actually look at what the confession says, but I want to kind of pull what I just said into what we're going to talk about. And it's this. Uh, Paul Washer is, is fairly fond of saying something along the lines of uh, this nation's not uh, gospel hardened, it's gospel ignorant. And it's gospel ignorant because many of its preachers are gospel ignorant. Well, I'm going to submit the same kind of a statement to the doctrine of God. This nation is not hardened against the doctrine of God. This nation is ignorant of the doctrine of God. And more than that, Many, many 
preachers, pastors, theologians are ignorant of the doctrine of God. They're ignorant of the attributes of God. They've never uh, taken the time to look and see who God is because they're so preoccupied with, oh, God is... God is love, and yes, that's true, but then God is this, and God is that, and, and, and basically what it boils down to in many churches is, is, is that God is the fluffy cloud of your dreams, right? Like everything that you want in an ultimate being turns out to be, guess what? God. And I think about the way that that affects things like Christian radio stations and Christian, quote-unquote, Christian artists who sing and dance and do all kinds of things uh, because it's almost inescapable for us without just completely pulling away from uh, the Christianese culture, right? Like, you want to turn on the radio... And this is the case in our area, right? You want to turn on the radio, but if you turn on a certain radio station, you're going to get just really old hymns with like organs and stuff like that. Are you going to turn on K-Love? I'd rather listen to the hymns with the organs and stuff, but the recordings are so terrible that, you know, it's, it's grating sometimes, right? And so then I realized that my children listen to K-Love, that my family listens to K-Love, and this is not hate on K-Love hour or anything like that, but like there's so much music, uh, that you can just tell is is based in this shallow Christianity where God is the cloud, the fluffy cloud, and uh, everything that we want as people, uh, you know, we want to be loved, we want to be accepted, we want to be thought of as good and happy and all this stuff. And like, those are the things that these Christian songs talk about and make God seem like he is. There's another theologian that said, uh, our Christianity in the West is a mile wide and about an inch deep. So let's look at what the confession says about God. Chapter 2.1 says, the Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. And then point number two in chapter two says, God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature. He has not made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, through him, and to him. He has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures to act through them, for them, or upon them, as he pleases. In his sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. It does not depend upon any creature so far. Uh, excuse me. It does not depend on any creature. So for him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. He is absolutely holy in all his plans, in all his works, in all his commands. Angels and human beings owe to him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the Creator and whatever else he is pleased to require of them. And so the study that we're going to begin tonight and continue for, I'm not sure how long, okay, 
uh, is a study of a number of passages and verses that deal with all of these attributes that the confession describes. In simple terms, the attributes of God are the qualities and characteristics that distinguish him from creation and make him known as holy, separate, and other from anything to which he could be compared. God's attributes are what make God God and what make everything else not God. So, I've got a list here, and this is a long list. I've got a list here of all of the attributes that uh, are in the confession here. God is one. He is the only living and true God. He is self-existent. And this quality is called his aseity or his aseity. God is ase, right? He is self-existent. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. He is infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by any but him. He is perfectly, he is a pure, perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and simple, which is the doctrine of simplicity. He is immortal. He dwells in light. None can approach. He is unchangeable. He is immense. And we're going to talk about that tonight. He is eternal. He is incomprehensible. He is almighty. He is infinite in every way. He is absolutely holy. He is perfectly wise. He is wholly free. He is completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. He is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, most patient. He overflows with goodness and truth. He forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. He rewards those who seek him. He is perfectly just. He hates sin. He will not clear the guilty. He has all life in himself, all glory in himself, all goodness in himself, all blessedness in himself. He is the source of all being. He is absolutely sovereign, and he has infinite knowledge. Now, there are a lot of theologians who have preached on and written about the attributes of God. And everybody ascribes certain attributes to him, right? But none of these lists are directly one for one, right? A lot of theologians break up these attributes in a lot of different ways. Some lists are shorter than others. Right, But since we're studying the confession, we're just going with the confession. Right, I'm not going to make a list. Uh, I'm reading some stuff that has some lists, and I'm listening to some things that has lists, but uh, we're just using the confession. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and read one more time. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. So, R.C. Sproul said about this verse, he said, this is the most fundamental assertion of historic Christianity, and it is, and it is the single most bombarded target by secular philosophy and, neo, and by neo-paganism in our day. Because every pagan knows if you can get rid of creation, you're rid of God. And if you and if you're rid of God, you can live however you want. And so everything that divides the Christian from the pagan is at stake in that opening assertion from the Old Testament. Okay? And so if God was already there at the beginning, in the beginning, God, if God was already there at the beginning, then he has to have eternally existed. If he has eternally existed and in the beginning spoke and created the heavens and the earth, then he is the uncaused cause of all things. This is the aseity of God. He exists in and of himself and is the cause of all other existence. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, wrote of this verse, There was a time, if time it could be called, when God, in the unity of his nature, though subsisting equally in three divine persons, dwelt all alone. In the beginning, God. 
There was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There was no, there were no angels to sing hymns, uh, to him his praises. No universe to be upheld by the power of his word. Or by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one but God. And that, not for a day, a year or an age, but from everlasting. During eternity past, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing. Had a universe, had angels, had human beings been necessary to him in any way, they also had been called into existence from all eternity. So God being present at the beginning of all things means that God is eternal, that he is not dependent upon anybody else for his existence, for his being. In fact, uh, one way that I heard uh, R.C. Sproul put it this week in my studies, he said, he said, if, if there was ever a mischaracterization in all of English language, right, it's that humans are humans, uh, human beings, right? Because the only one that truly has being that is not something that began is God. So this has to be in the back of our minds whenever we encounter other verses or, verses or passages about God as the Creator. So the confession deals directly with the physical act of creation in a later chapter. But what I'm trying to point out here is the attributes of God that are characterized uh, that we can recognize by his being the creator, among other things. Right. So when we see God as the creator, what does that tell us about God? So Isaiah Chapters 40 through 45 or 46 or so are called by some the trial of the false gods. In these chapters, God uses his own attributes as an offensive argument to dismantle and bring to nothing the idea that there are other gods who are worthy to be worshipped. Okay, so in the context, so, so in context, one of the main thrusts of the discourse that we're about to look at is that God is a capable Savior. The qualities that are put forth in the coming verses are meant to comfort God's people. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. <clears throat> What we have here, what we have here, is a discourse given by the prophet about who God is. And what it's meant to do, ultimately, is give God's people hope in their coming salvation. Right? And so what Isaiah is doing is he's saying, look at God! Look at who he is. Look at everything he is and know that you have hope. But tonight we're not, we're not, we're not primarily talking about the hope there. But what we need to recognize as we move forward through these passages, through this portion of Isaiah, right? what we need to recognize is that this is where all of these arguments spring from. Right? God is not just standing back and going, look at me. What he's doing is he's standing back going, look. Look at who I am. Look at everything about me. I'm going to do what I said I will do. I'm going to save my people. But it's because of who I am. So let's look. At this passage, Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 12, it says, Who has measured the waters 
in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or who, ha- or who as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering." All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So we look back at verse 12, right? What we're going to see is that each of these questions in verse 12 is rhetorical in nature. Okay, so there's an implied answer. And that answer is resounding, not you, right? Not you. So we could rephrase the questions to better understand the point. Have you measured the waters in the hollow of your hand? Have you marked off the heavens by the span? Have you calculated the dust of the earth by measure? Have you weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? And what I hope you recognize, what I hope you see, what I hope you're saying to yourself is no, no. And that was the point for the Israelites here, right? Who has done these things? Well, it's not you, Israel. It's not you, O man. So the more precise implied answer to these questions is God has. God has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. And God has used uh, these questions before to make his case as almighty maker. Turn with me to Job chapter 38. This is the big moment for Job. This is the one, right? Job's done an awful lot of talking, and his friends have done an awful lot of talking. And God has come down and decided to answer Job. Job 38, starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and look at compare these to what we just read in Isaiah. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no further." And here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. So the points in these verses that are relevant to the confession are that we can see God is self-existent because he is the creator. He is almighty. 
and all-sufficient, because there is no one that can claim his works, and there is no one that has helped him. God uses rhetorical devices like this in making his points. Because the point is to put the focus back on him. And why does it need to be there? Because he is the source of life. Because he is the source of all being. Because he is the eternal one. Because he is the infinite one. Because he is the wise one. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. We'll read in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So Steve Lawson puts it this way, right? This verse. He says, from, for from him, right? God is the source of all things. Okay? Through him, all things are by his sovereign power and decree. And to him, are all things. All things resound to his glory. Now, I want you to keep your finger there because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. Okay? But let's jump back into Isaiah and continue. Isaiah 40, chapter, uh, chapter 40, verse 13, it says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or who as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding. So again here, we see the rhetorical device that God's using. Right? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Not you. Or as his counselor has informed him? Not you. With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? Definitely, definitely not me. Definitely not you. <clears throat> and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? Not you. And who informed him of the way of understanding? We didn't need you for that. So what we're going to see is we flip back. I told you to keep your finger there. Back to Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> Let's back up a couple verses to verse 33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? So in these verses, we see that Paul is quoting our passage in Isaiah and making the same rhetorical points. God has not been counseled by anyone. God has not been dependent upon anyone or anything else to make his determinations, to render his judgments, or to have wisdom. God is not needful of anything that we could give him. In fact, the things that we have that we could give to God came from him in the first place. So here we see relevant to the confession that God is incomprehensible. Right? How unsearchable are his, are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And we see that he is perfectly 
wise, that he works all things according to the counsel of his own will, and that he has all glory in himself. And again, that he is all sufficient in himself because he needs no one. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Whereas his counselor has informed him. No one has counseled God. No one has directed the spirit of the Lord. So God has no need of anyone to give him understanding. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 in referring to Christ, who is God incarnate, says that in him, in him, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me ask you something. This is a simple question. How can you give wisdom and give knowledge to one who has all wisdom and knowledge? Can't. Job 21 verse 22 says, Can anyone teach God knowledge and that he judges those on high? God acts as the judge of all creation. And how could a judge who is over the ones he is giving judgment to get anything from those? Right? If God is the one making the judgments about creation, he's above it. He's greater than it. To the question in verse 14 of who taught him in the path of justice, if the implication is, as it must be, that no one taught him, then we can also see that he is perfectly just by virtue of the fact that he has needed no one to teach him justice. I was trying to think of a... uh, of an analogy or a metaphor uh, earlier today about this, and uh, this is a this is a dumb one. It's the simplest one I can come up with, right? But I had to learn how to weld, right? I remember the I remember the first time I ever welded in my entire life, um, and it was when I was like eleven or twelve. I was in Montana, and my uncle was like, "Here, weld this," and I had no I didn't even know what I was looking at. I didn't even know. He just said, "Squeeze the trigger," and all I get was. You know, the the thing you get when you're way too far away and and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I needed someone to teach me how to weld. Right now, at at that time, I didn't know that eventually I would become a welder and that would be my profession. Right. But uh, I needed someone to teach me. Now, let's reverse that. Right. Let's reverse that. Let's say I already knew how to weld. Let's say that by virtue of being me. Right. I am the best welder that ever has lived. Just 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 by me being myself. I'm the best welder. Do I need anyone to teach me how to weld? If by virtue of my being I'm a great welder? No. No. So the implication of God not needing anyone to teach him justice is that he is perfectly just. Moving into verse 15. What we're going to see here uh, is an argument that God uses quite a bit. Okay? Uh, The argument is his immensity, the immensity of God. Uh, When we think of God, one of the things we should rightly imagine is how immense he is. And this does not only refer to thinking about how big God is, but how excellent he is. So look in verse 15, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop 
from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. A little bit later, uh, as we as we move through Isaiah a little further, right? Uh, it won't be tonight. But a little bit later, it talks about uh, the nations being like grasshoppers, right? Like the people in the nations being like grasshoppers, okay? And so the, the picture here that God is trying to give of himself, the picture here of his immensity, right, is like if I go outside and I see an ant crawling on the ground, the ant wants to pick a fight with me. Who's winning the fight? I ain't got to try. All I got to do is shift my weight. That's it. And the thing's over. It's dead. It's done. There's nothing. It's not a threat that God is holding over the heads of his people, but he's, he's describing himself as, look, look, I get that you think you're something. Because you're man, and you've built these cities, and you've done these things, and you've shed this blood, and you've, you know, all this stuff, right? I get that you think this is a big deal. But you're like a drop from a bucket. And I regard you as a speck of dust on Scales. Have you ever, uh, have you ever watched a golfer get on the green, right? When they're like, they're about to make their putt, you know? Um, and they, they do this even more like, uh, like, uh, cause wind doesn't exactly affect putts a lot unless it's like a lot of wind, right? But they'll still, they'll still do this. They'll do this in, in different aspects of the game, right? But they'll be getting ready to make a shot and they'll take some grass, right? And they'll just, they'll be down to pick it up and they'll do this number right here and they'll like let it fall. And they see which way the wind's blowing so they can adjust their shot accordingly. God says, behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust, right? The islands these places that are like these immense ports and um, marvels of the ancient world, right? God does this. Because they're nothing before him. They're nothing before him. Often when God's making arguments against the nation or against his own people, he refers to just how small we are. And so when we think of the immensity of God, one thing it does is it puts our view of ourselves and our problems in a more proper perspective, right? And I want to show you this in action in the scriptures, okay? Let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 2. <clears throat> 2 Chronicles chapter 2. We'll look starting in verse 1. It says, Now Solomon decided to build a house for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. So Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads and 80,000 men to quarry stone in the mountains and 3,600 to supervise them. And then Solomon sent word to Huram, the king of Tyre, saying, As you dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build him a house and dwell in, so do for me. Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, dedicating it to him, to burn fragrant incense before him, and to set out the showbread continually, and to offer burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths and on new moons and on the appointed feast of the Lord our God, this being required forever in Israel. The house which I'm about to build, build will be great, for greater is our God than all the gods. And I want to stop there before we get to the next verse, because we don't, we haven't seen the temple, right? Like none of us in this room has been to Israel and seen the temple, seen the ruins of the temple, because that's what it is now. But the city used to be called the shining city. It was the city on a hill because Jerusalem was literally on top of a hill. And the dome, right? Well, not the dome, but the, the, the roof of the temple, right? Gold and all these things. And so 
way far off, way far off when you were coming into Jerusalem because it was the city on the hill and because the temple had this awesome covering, right? You could look from afar, and if the sun was reflecting in a certain way, it looked like a star in the distance on top of the hill. Okay? This is, this is the house that Solomon was wanting to build for God. This is something that the ancients marveled at. I mean, we look at the numbers of the people that Solomon was sending to do the work. He says, uh, 70,000 men to carry loads and 80,000 men to quarry stone. There's a lot of people working on these bricks. And if you go back through uh, portions of Chronicles and Kings and you see all the stuff that he used to build the temple, you're just like, wow. And you look at some of these columns and some of these things that he used to build, and you're just like, man, I can't even understand how somebody back in the day could have done that, much less what it would have looked like to walk up and see just these massive columns and this massive structure that was like glorious and built to be utterly beautiful. And then you walk on the inside and you see the cherubim and the holy of holies and you see all these things that would overwhelm our senses and you smell all the smells, right? You smell the incense and you smell the burnt animals and you smell all the things that were supposed to be pleasing to God. And you're just like, wow. Verse 6, but who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heaven cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? Solomon's someone in history that even the secularists look back on and they're like, that guy had it. And what does Solomon say? Because he understands the immensity of God. He says, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. And so what I'm doing right now, I'm building sandcastles, man. Because when you compare what he wanted to do with who God is, you can see the proper perspective. One far outweighs the other. So back to Isaiah 40, verse 16. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. So in verse 16, we see yet another attribute of God. We see his purity, the purity of God. And why do I say that? Even Lebanon is not enough to burn. And what you see in the Old Testament is over and over again, they talk about the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars, Lebanon was a source of wood for many, many structures that Israel built. Okay. And it was considered as a gift, like, a, like an awesome gift that Lebanon would send their wood, their cedars to Israel, to Jerusalem, <coughs> especially for things like the temple and like Solomon's palace. But God says, even Lebanon doesn't have enough to burn for me. And nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. There were several uh, reasons to offer a burnt offering in Old Testament Israel, right? One of the reasons was atonement for sin. What God's saying is that if you took all of the beasts in Lebanon, and I'll go so far as to say all the beasts in the world, and you piled them up and said, God, forgive my sins. It's not enough. Why? Because your sins are so great? No. Because God is so pure.
the purity of God. That if you burned all of Lebanon as a burnt offering, it's not enough because he is so pure. Uh, turn with me to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6, it says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in a thousand, thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? God's purity is such that the only, the only way you could get close to it is to be pure yourself. God's purity is such that the only way we can approach Him is not because of a sacrifice that we bring, but because of a sacrifice that He offered on our behalf. The only one pure enough to die and make us pure enough to approach God was God Himself. God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, dying on a tree, shedding blood on behalf of God's people. A lot of people look, and they don't think much of sin, right? They don't think much of a little white lie or a little this or a little that, whatever, you know. And... We don't realize, we don't realize the purity of God. We don't realize the holiness of God. Because if we did, we would realize that those sins that we don't treat as much cost Christ his life. How bad was that white lie, that quote-unquote white lie? How bad was that? It was bad enough to kill God. And I'm not saying that for shock value, right? What did it cost? It cost the only pure being. That's ever existed. That's what it cost. So, back to Isaiah. Last verse for the night. Isaiah 40, verse 17. It says, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So, in this verse, I want to pull our attention to one word, because it will actually bring us back to where we began in Genesis 1. The word here rendered in English as meaningless is the Hebrew word tohu, and it means void. And it's the same word as what's used in Genesis 1-2 and rendered as without form. So R.C. Sproul, in speaking about the necessity of God's existence, was fond of using an object like a pen, or even, I heard him in a lecture one time, use his shoe, right? He pulled off his shoe and he's like, hey, look at this. Um, he was fond of using an object like a pen or a shoe saying, uh, this shoe proves that God exists. For without God, it could not exist. So to say that the universe and everything in it had a definite beginning is to presuppose one who is infinite and has no beginning. 
So logically, for anything to have become, for anything to have become, you must start with the one who is. And that's God. So without God, creation is void. It is without form. It is meaningless. It cannot be. Our existence, everything we see around us, everything we can touch, everything we can't touch, we look look in the night sky and we see the stars and the blackness and the planets and all the stuff, all of it cannot exist apart from God. Why does God regard all the nations as nothing less than nothing and void? Because apart from and without him, that is all they can be. Nothing. Nothing. We are so utterly dependent upon this almighty one. That it's silly for us not to recognize it. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you again for this night. Father, I pray, Lord, uh, that your word would go forth and not return void. As the scripture says, I pray that the things I've said here tonight would bear fruit. I pray that you would help us to understand who you are. And I pray, God, that you would forgive my inadequacy and my weakness as a man in speaking of such things. God, what what can we do but stammer and stutter when we try to express who you are? Lord, get glory for yourself. Help us to know you, God. Help us to understand you as much as we can as men. Amen.